Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up, the coal industry is struggling nationwide to put up money for cleanup costs. It could be a serious financial burden on coal companies. You know, on the one hand, you want to see them do what's right. And on the other hand, you know, you understand that your friends and neighbors may still be going to work. Well, look at how kids going to school on the internet has become more mainstream. When you would tell people, you know, I'm an online student or I'm a distance ed student, people might look at them like they're from Mars or something. We'll also talk to two former members of the so-called Black 14. Those stories and more all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. In Wyoming, over 170,000 acres of land is currently dug up and built on for mining operations. Mine reclamation, filling those pits with dirt and then recreating the ecosystem that once was, is expensive. Inside Energy has found that Wyoming has $3 billion in outstanding mine cleanup costs. Over $2 billion of that isn't backed up with cash. And so, as the dramatic fall of the coal industry rapidly advances, Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports the state is ground zero when it comes to the fate of our massive coal mine cleanup costs. I meet Carla Oxman on a windy stretch of highway overlooking a dark, cavernous, open pit mine near Gillette, Wyoming. Thanks for meeting me. Nice to meet you. She points past some power lines towards her house, nestled on a hill just past Eagle Butte Mine. The Velveeta house, it's right through that post. Velveeta for its yellow color. Carla and her husband live so close to the mine they can feel it. The shaking from the blast, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like an earthquake. Over the years, they've managed to coexist. But Carla is now concerned about the issue of cleanup because the future of this mine is uncertain. Its owner is Alpha Natural Resources, one of the largest coal companies in the country. They filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. Regulators estimate it would cost over $400 million to restore Alpha's Wyoming mines, including this one. But in its most recent financial filings, the company listed nationwide liabilities two and a half times greater than its assets. Now the question of who will take on that cleanup debt and how it will get paid back is getting worked out in bankruptcy court. It would be a huge program to try to fill it all in and hopefully they won't leave it for the taxpayer to pay the bill. Leaving it to the taxpayer is exactly what is never supposed to happen. Before mining even begins, federal law requires that coal companies provide financial guarantees that cleanup will be paid for even if the company goes under. But there's a certain type of financial guarantee behind billions of dollars in outstanding cleanup costs that isn't much more than a promise. It's called self-bonding. And no, it's not a move you read about in Fifty Shades of Grey. Self-bonding is more of a financial maneuver. A self-bond is basically like an IOU. Clark Williams-Derry is with the Sightline Institute, a think tank focusing on sustainability, energy, and the environment. It's just kind of a piece of paper that says, hey, you know what? I'm good for it. 
The requirements vary state to state, but in order to self-bond, coal companies must first pass a test of financial strength. And for a long time, it didn't seem to be much of a problem. But now, in a struggling coal market, big companies, companies that seem to be too healthy to fail, too big to go under, that are approaching bankruptcy. Some of them have already gone into bankruptcy, and they've been self-bonding. The issue extends far beyond Wyoming's coal-rich Powder River Basin. Inside Energy calculated that over half of the projected costs to clean up mines in at least five states, Wyoming, Colorado, North Dakota, Indiana, and Texas, are covered by self-bonds. The top two coal-producing states, Wyoming and West Virginia, are some of the first to be forced to deal with mine cleanup in this downturn. Regulators here defend the program and say the self-bonding system is working for now. Kyle Wentland is with Wyoming's Department of Environmental Quality. No one has, you know, had to pay a penny yet for this, you know, out of the public for this reclamation. It is a tough topic for everybody, I think, in the community. Over lunch, Carla Oxman, who is married to a retired coal miner herself, explains the catch-22 of the situation. If coal companies actually have to put up the money for reclamation in place of self-bonds, it could hurt their already dismal balance sheets, sending them into bankruptcy. Alpha Natural Resources said as much in financial documents not long before it filed for bankruptcy. Quote, failure to maintain self-bonding status could affect our ability to mine, unquote. You know, on the one hand, you want to see them do what's right. And on the other hand, you know, you understand that your friends and neighbors may still be going to work. By allowing self-bonding to continue for so long, we've dug ourselves into a deep hole that will likely only get worse. Two of the nation's biggest coal companies, Arch Coal and Peabody Energy, together have nearly $2 billion worth of self-bonded mines. Arch is on the edge of bankruptcy and Peabody could be next. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. Shifting now to another set of high costs in Wyoming, State Representative Mike Madden and the Joint Revenue Committee will be busy next week. They have a number of issues from local government funding to how to pay for school construction that they need to address. With the recent revenue projections, the committee will need to see if there are new ways to pay for such things. One idea could even be a property tax. Madden, who chairs the House Revenue Committee, joins me now. Is there an opportunity to find revenue to deal with some of these things like education, maybe local governments, that sort of thing? Well, I think uh, what I've been doing, or what my committee, I should say, has been doing, is looking for ways to uh, spend our money better uh, from the standpoint that, uh, you know, we're not going to have as much money to to be passing to local governments, as an example, uh, this year compared to other years. But uh, the logic here is is that there's some local governments that really can sustain themselves very well, and there's others that just simply can't go it alone. Uh, we had a study done uh, by LSO, and you know I kind of watched it day by day, and we found that there's some. Uh, some local governments, some counties, for example, that are about 25 to 30 times more able to uh, finance themselves than some other counties are. So if you rank, rank them from 
the poorest county revenue-wise to the the most well-to-do one. We have the widest discrepancy, I would guess, anywhere in the United States. And so I guess what we're saying here is that the counties or local governments, counties and cities that have the, uh, clearly the hardest uh, difficulty in financing themselves, we've got to, you know, be more attentive to their revenue concerns than we do some other ones. So there, there could be, uh, you know, I think we recommend, uh, you know, if there's evidence that we've probably been overpaying some counties in terms of their ability to finance themselves, and we've probably underpaid or undercompensated uh, other counties. You think you're getting close to where you can see this being fair? Well, oh, I can, yeah. I've, I'm convinced of it. What we've done is we've looked at the ability to finance themselves in terms of property taxes per capita and in terms of uh, uh, taxable or sales tax revenue per capita. And uh, if you uh, would compensate or, or distribute funds uh, in inverse proportion to those two uh, variables, you can clearly see how your limited amount of funds can do more good than it is now. You know, we right now our formula is so uh, out of whack that if we have me the seventh to the poorest county and the richest county and they happen to have the same population, we pass the same amount of money out to them, which, which, which is nonsensical. The other obviously big topic and the and the one that everybody circled when they looked at the Craig report was was education. We've mm-hmm. we've had obviously a lot of coal money that has gone into construction and 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 even the foundation. Uh, how much have you looked at that already, and how t- difficult is this going to be to find a revenue stream that maybe makes up for that lack of coal money? The way it looks to me, we've got a year or two to to get our our act together on that we they're not totally out of money but we can see the pipeline is is coming to an end so it it is incumbent on us to come up with another uh source of uh of construction money because we can't stop you know we're well over halfway through with these uh school construction projects but we still have some left and we can't just say well since you were at the end of the line, uh, you don't. Your your school's just going to have to sit there and and uh, you know crumble or whatever the case is. So uh, we we've got to look at another source, and and that topic has been assigned to the Joint Revenue Committee. I don't expect that we'll have a solution in time for this budget session. My goal is to have a a bill, uh, maybe a couple of different alternative bills uh, available for the 2017 session. And I don't really know where we're going to go on that. You know, one possibility would be a kind of a statewide uh, uh, school construction mill levy. I don't know if that would be uh, popular or not, but I think it would be more palatable if we have the right kind of financial information so that we can put a sunset on it and say, as soon as this happens, then we won't need this mill anymore. It does seem to you, though, as you look at what you've seen so far, that if you're going to continue doing school construction, you're probably going to need a revenue stream there. 
I think so. I, I don't know of I don't know of any magic uh, new source that's going to come along, and take the place of this coal bonus uh, lease money. That was House Revenue Committee Chairman Mike Madden. The committee meets Thursday and Friday in Cheyenne. When we come back, we'll talk some more about taxes and chat with an epidemiologist about diabetes in Wyoming. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Earlier, we heard Representative Mike Madden discuss two key funding challenges the Joint Revenue Committee will tackle next week. One other topic of discussion will be whether to raise the state tobacco tax. A dollar increase would raise $20 million, but the hope is that it will also curtail smoking. Jason Mincer is the Government Relations Director for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. His organization is strongly in favor of increasing the tax. There are several important uh, pieces and factors that come forward when we talk about tobacco taxes. And the biggest one is that while there is funding raised when you increase a tax, the more important part for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network and the other health-related organizations who are working on this particular piece are the health ramifications. When you increase the price of tobacco products, including cigarettes and snuff and, and chewing tobacco, it is a proven way to motivate people to quit and, and also to keep children from ever picking up this habit. Um, and so that's the real important part for us at the Cancer Society Cancer Action Network is the getting people to quit and the lower cancer rates and the elimination of cancer that happens from people never picking up a, a, a tobacco product. One of the things that seems to be interesting, and, and this might surprise a lot of people, is Wyoming's uh, current cigarette tax is awfully low. Uh, it, it's among the lowest in the country, isn't it? Right now, we rank 42nd. Uh, I can tell you that there's uh, uh, several tobacco-growing states that are in the bottom with us, but we are certainly in the bottom of those non-tobacco-growing states. Right now, we it roughly uh, the state cigarette taxes, if I'm reading this correctly, is about sixty cents. Is there a proposal, a number that you guys would like to see that that would accomplish what you're after? We need to see uh, a substantial increase in price when purchases are are made in order to see the health benefits take place. And so, what we're recommending. And what we recommended to the Labor Committee and what we're going to recommend to the Revenue Committee is to start that increase at at least a dollar increase. And that would take us to $1.60 per pack, and that would put us right at the national average. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're projecting in youth smoking alone roughly 13.5%. Is that one of the bigger targets is to actually go after the youth because maybe you could make it unaffordable for them to take on this habit? Well, it's a, it, again, it's a proven factor for youth, not only to get them to quit, but also to keep them from ever starting if we price them out of the market to begin with. Um, but if we can get youth to quit or not to start, 
we don't have to worry as much about them taking up tobacco habits later on. A high percentage of people, of adults who smoke, started smoking before they turned 18. And, you know, if we can keep them them away from these these products prior to becoming adults, they likely won't become uh, uh, addicted in their adult years. Yeah, when you raise the cigarette tax, you could roughly raise another $20 million for the state. But but there's other costs involved here or other savings involved here is the proper way to say it. And and that would be in the, in the area of health care costs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. We know that, that uh, the deadly addiction to tobacco, including smoking, is very expensive to our Department of Health, and in particular, the Medicaid budget. Uh, the, the studies and research that we see has almost $45 million a year being spent on tobacco-related health care costs in the Medicaid program. And if you take the, the uh, not only those Medicaid costs, but, but add in the, the complete tax burden to the households in Wyoming, that number jumps to about $840 a year. And that tax burden is to both the people who smoke and to the people who do not. So this is not a small um, um, budgetary concern, either for the individual household or for the state. This is, this is a real issue that we need to address. Uh, again, the Revenue Committee meets on this tax as well as a, a couple of other revenue increases next week in Cheyenne. Jason, always a pleasure chatting with you, and thank you so much. I certainly appreciate your time as well, Bob. Jason Mincer is the Government Relations Director for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Staying with the issue of health, November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and the percentage of Wyoming adults with diabetes has nearly doubled in the last 15 years. That's causing concern at the Wyoming Department of Health, where chronic disease epidemiologist Joe Grandprix has been watching the situation unfold. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard checked in with Grandprix to find out why diabetes is a growing problem. We're looking at type 2 diabetes here, which is linked to obesity. Our obesity numbers uh, have gone up. So in, in 2001, about one in five Wyoming adults were considered obese. And in 2014, that number is basically one in three, or three out of every 10. As obesity goes up, obesity is the leading cause of type 2 diabetes. We're going to see, uh, we're going to see an increase of diabetes as well. And that, that underlying cause of obesity, is there any particular reason why that has been going up? Um, just, you know, less exercise. Um, about one in five Wyoming adults get no leisure time physical activity at all. And we don't eat a lot of fruit and vegetables. We, uh, we like our meat in Wyoming, and uh, it tends to help us pack on the pounds. It's not the only thing. I'm in my you know, middle age now, and I remember when a soda at the movie theater was just you know 12 ounces, and today it's like 48 ounces. And there's a lot of calories in those things. And so if we're drinking a couple of them a day and not thinking about it, we're packing out a lot of extra calories that we're not getting rid of. Eating fruits and vegetables and exercising more are certainly some of the, the best ways to prevent diabetes. But mm-hmm. if we're looking at people with pre-diabetes, something has clearly already gone wrong. What can we do in those kinds of situations as far as prevention goes? Basically, same thing. Get rid of that extra weight. 
you know, type two diabetes, it's kind of like wearing down your your pancreas. It's kind of like wearing down the tires on your car. It takes a long time usually to do that. It just kind of wears out over time, as opposed to the type one diabetes, where the pancreas just stops working. Type two is just a long kind of progression, where you're adding on the pounds and and your pancreas is having to work harder and harder to to change carbohydrates into into fat and store them and all of that kind of stuff. Problem is, is that we've been seeing people younger and younger with type 2 diabetes. Back in the 1970s, it was very rare to see anyone under the age of 40 with type 2 diabetes. Today, we're seeing kids as young as 10 and 11 with type 2 diabetes. But the good thing about prediabetes is that you catch it early enough. You do have a shot at reversing the trend. And if you can start exercising, eating right, getting rid of the fat, you have a chance of just of not even getting diabetes. I want to hit a little bit on the cost of diabetes to the state of Wyoming. Diabetes is rarely diagnosed as a primary diagnosis. So when you go into the hospital, they have a, like a primary diagnosis or the main reason that you're there. Okay, so if you're in a car accident and you're bleeding, your leg is broke, you know, that's the main reason you're there. Well, diabetes is a little different because it doesn't have any symptoms until you start experiencing complications. So your eyes go bad and then your eye doctor tells you you have diabetes or your feet hurt and then the doctor tells you you have diabetes. So primary diagnosis. There was only 537 of them in fiscal year 2014. That cost or that charge was $10 million. But because diabetes is rarely diagnosed as a primary diagnosis, it's almost always diagnosed as a secondary diagnosis. So if you include the secondary diagnoses, it goes from 537 discharges up to 7,088 discharges and from $10 million up to $232 million. That's just hospital charges. What is Wyoming doing and uh, the Wyoming Department of Health doing as far as prevention and awareness, especially during this Diabetes Awareness Month? We're trying a few different things. Um, one of them is to, is to really get folks, especially people with diabetes, to really make sure that they're kind of taking control of their diabetes and, and making sure that they get their feet checked and making sure that you get A1C test, which is a test to show whether or not your diabetes is, is being controlled well. The other thing that we're doing is really kind of trying to focus on kids and making sure that kids know that they need to get out there and exercise. They need to get out there and, and eat their fruits and veggies and trying to stress that that needs to continue throughout your life. That if you really want to prevent diabetes, you need to be active, whether that's walking your dog or working in the garden or whatever, it's important. Joe Grandprix is the chronic disease epidemiologist at the Wyoming Department of Health. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Coming up next, we'll learn about online learning and talk to members of the Black 14. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. More than 1% of the public school students in Wyoming will not set foot in a classroom this year. They attend virtual schools that exist entirely on the web. As interest in online schools surges nationally, state education officials are working to improve and expand this option for kids. It's the first of a series of stories on virtual education in the Cowboy State. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank looks at why some families choose this unconventional approach. At the home of the Williams family in Centennial, a room full of children are wearing headsets and staring at computer screens. Um, what are we doing next? I think we'll do reading. Want to get your storybook out? Six-year-old Sayla has help from her mom as she types and clicks her way through today's lessons. All five of Liz Williams' children living here are full-time students at Wyoming Virtual Academy. She says it allows her to be more hands-on with their learning. I can see how they're doing on their progress. It'll show for each class. And we don't have to deal with some of the peer pressure stuff that most kids do have to deal with. Picking up Papa's, put them in a pocket. Picking up Papa's, As eight-year-old Charity belts out some vocal exercises, 14-year-old Elijah clicks into classes taught through an online interface that includes chat boxes and teleconferences. This is the only kind of school he's been to. So you get the structure of the courses that they already lay out for you in brick and mortar school, but you also get the ability to like work ahead. Mommy, I did two pages! This works for the Williams family, who live 30 miles from the nearest middle school. Liz says she would prefer to homeschool her kids and pick the books and activities they'll use, but public virtual schools provide that stuff for free. We can still teach our values through the curriculum they're giving, and this is what other kids are being taught, so they're on a similar playing field. And I do think the independence that this offers, similarly to homeschool, prepares them better than I think your traditional public school. A Wyoming Department of Education survey found that most families choose virtual schools to avoid problems with other kids and to be able to learn at their own pace. Some, like the Williams family, live in rural areas or converted from homeschooling. There are just two statewide virtual schools, Wyoming Virtual Academy and Wyoming Connections Academy. We serve students with all different kinds of needs. Mike Lundy is the vice principal at Wyoming Connections. In the six years the school has been open, he says he's seen attitudes change. People are a lot more open to it, whereas at one point when you would tell people, you know, I'm an online student or I'm a distance ed student, people might look at them like they're from Mars or something. Lundy's leading a field trip today to UW's planetarium a chance for classmates from around the state to meet face-to-face. I can control whether the sun is up or down, uh, whether we have stars, and things that we do, so I control it well. Oh. Eighth grader McKenna Sisko is here from Cheyenne. She started at Connections in third grade after having some problems at school. Just the amount of bullying that was in public school, people just made fun of me for her, like my shyness and how quiet I was. It was a fight to get her up in the morning and fight to just get her out the door. Debbie Walitich is McKenna's grandma. And most of the time she was late and then she would get in trouble because she had too many tardies, you know, and she didn't want to go. Bullying is a factor for about 40% of the students who make the switch to Wyoming's virtual schools. McKenna says Wyoming Connections solved her problem. Well, I've been thinking about maybe trying high school, but if that doesn't work, I'm coming right back to Connections. Not every student's experience is as positive as McKenna's. 
A study by the National Education Policy Center found that graduation rates at virtual schools are less than half the average for all public schools. Here in Wyoming, it's hard to figure out how virtual schools are doing because the data is hidden from view. We'll hear about that in the next part of our series. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. now take a look back at some Wyoming history. The news that African-American football players at the University of Missouri threatened not to play a football game against Brigham Young reminded some Wyoming players of the time they got kicked off of their team prior to a game with BYU. In Wyoming lore, they're known as the Black 14. Two of those former players noticed that the Missouri football coach supported his players, something that did not happen at Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more. It was 1969, and the unbeaten Wyoming Cowboys were ranked 12th in the nation. Wyoming was a national power at the time, having played in the Sugar Bowl the year before. BYU was owned and operated by the Mormon Church, and at the time had policies that discriminated against African Americans. Other schools had protested against them, and Wyoming players wanted to do the same. The Cowboys' African American players had hoped to wear black armbands that Saturday against BYU. Former player Mel Hamilton thought it was the right thing to do. That it was time for us to um, make a move, make a decision that was going to help the cause. Head coach Lloyd Eaton reportedly told Tri-Captain Joe Williams, an African-American, not to get involved in a protest. That night, Williams and the other players went to his office to discuss it wearing armbands. Guillermo Hysaw says Williams spoke to Eaton alone, and it did not go well. When Eaton called us into the field house, he came out uh, fiery and, and, and very uh, agitated. Uh, we didn't get to say a word. He never heard what we wanted to do, you know, what our, what our idea was. There was no options offered. There was no dialogue with Coach Eaton or his staff, period. Hysaw says the coach was also demeaning. He said, you know, most of you come from split homes and broken families and don't know who your father is. I'm the only father that most of you will ever know, and you defied me by wearing these black armbands. He said, why don't you go to the Gremlin and Morgan State and, uh, where they might tolerate this, but it won't be tolerated here. That's when he kicked all 14 off the team. Mel Hamilton says what struck him about Missouri is that the coach backed the players, and there was communication. The whole turning point there was the coaches uh, backing and the white football players backing. As you know, we didn't get, the 14 did not get any uh, backing from our white players. So therefore, we were not, we didn't have any leverage. Hysaw says many of the Wyoming white players would have supported the 14 had they known about the plans ahead of time. But he also points out that the African-American players at Missouri had a lot going for them. But when 68% of your football team is African-American, I mean, what are you going to do if they're saying, hey, we're going to walk out, we're not going to play? And then 
here's the, the beauty of even beyond that. The white player said, we're going with them. Now, to me, that's powerful. What's the coach going to do? And what can he do? I saw also notes that had Missouri not played, it would have had to pay a million dollars to BYU. So he says the issue had more to do with money. Hamilton admits that the Missouri protest made him think back to that day in Laramie. I was angry that um, uh, we at the time in Wyoming did not get that kind of support. And if we had, things would have been different for many, many people. Including Coach Lloyd Eaton, who saw his team win only one game the following year and stepped down. He never coached again, and the football team was never the same. The incident left a scar on both of the players. Hysaw rarely talks about it and won't watch Wyoming on television. Hamilton says he's tried to forgive. I'm not as angry anymore. Of course, there's a little bit of uh, bad taste in my mouth, and I wish someday that that will be over with. I'm still struggling with it. Try, in my late age, I'm trying to uh, forgive, but it's, it's hard to do, to be frank with you. It's very hard to do. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. One of the most controversial figures in the history of the American West is Ogallala Chief Red Cloud. To some, a brilliant warrior and politician. To others, blamed for the Ogallala's loss of the Black Hills. Now there's a new biography called Red Cloud, Ogallala Legend. I talked with research historian John McDermott about how the Ogallala ended up in Wyoming, and why giving up these lands meant the end of their way of life. Now, um, I wonder if you might start at the beginning and just talk a little bit about Red Cloud's childhood and, you know, how much of it he spent in the state of Wyoming. Well, Red Cloud was born on May 21st, uh, 1821, uh, near Ash Hollow, Nebraska, when Fort Laramie in Wyoming was established in 1834, the traders invited all the tribes, of course, to come and trade. That area became sort of their place where they would go to get uh, resupplied and so on and trade their robes and furs. So Red Cloud and uh, his people were over in Wyoming pretty much generally in, after 1834. Uh, but in the 1840s, why the Oregon Trail was established and it came through southern Wyoming, and um, the Oglalas and other tribes began to feel the impact of that great migration, and uh, 
so the Indians began to move away and go up north towards uh, the center part of Wyoming. And finally, they ended up uh, near the Bighorn Mountains, which was a wonderful hunting place and uh, the place where uh, they were free from whites until about 1862-63 when gold was discovered in Montana and miners took a trail going north from Fort Laramie along the eastern side of the Bighorn Mountains called the Bozeman Trail. Can you tell me a little bit more about Red Cloud's war, what, he, what his philosophy was at that phase of his leadership? The eastern side of the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming was the last best hunting grounds of the Sioux. There was good grass, there was uh, water, and it was just the best place they had. So when the gold was discovered, why the miners could have gone several ways to the gold strikes, but the quickest one, the closest one, was from Fort Laramie straight north. It went right through the middle of the hunting grounds. And that's why Red Clouds and his warriors resisted. In December of uh, 1866, soldiers from Fort Phil Kearney were lured outside by Red Cloud's warriors. Uh, there were 80 soldiers and uh, Captain William J. Fetterman as the officer in charge, and uh, all of them were killed. And at that point, Red Cloud was the greatest warrior on the plains. There were several other battles on the Bozeman Trail that were more or less uh, oh, standoffs, but they were so effective in keeping the troops from doing their job, the government decided to abandon the forts on the Bozeman Trail and give in to Red, Red Cloud's wishes. Can you talk a little bit about what the uh, importance of the Treaty of 1868 was? Well, to end the Red Cloud's war, why this treaty was agreed to at Fort Laramie in 1868, and it provided for a permanent reservation for the Sioux in the western half of the state of South Dakota, and that included the Black Hills. And at that point, why uh, the Indians also had the right to roam the area between the Yellowstone on the north, the North Platte on the south, the Black Hills on the east, and the Bighorns on the west. After the Great Sioux War of 1876-77, which uh, is most known for the Battle of the Little Bighorn, why the government uh, more or less coerced the Oglalas and the other tribes into giving up the Black Hills, and they were moved over into South Dakota permanently. Then in later years, why that reservation was reduced until 1889 when nine million more acres were taken away. So Red Cloud was uh, trying to uh, save his uh, people's land, and he did so through Red Cloud's war, but he, he began to uh, suffer a defeat, so to speak, uh, by all these treaties that followed. He uh, decided uh, to give up chieftainship and, and named his son to follow him, and, he, and for another decade or so while he was uh, living on the 
reservation. He's very ill health. He's blind mostly. And uh, he died in uh, 1909, almost, uh, almost 90 years old. How is Red Cloud remembered now by the tribes uh, in terms of later in his years when he did become more willing to cooperate with the U.S. government? What, what's his legacy now? Red Cloud, um, it was a little bit of a disadvantage in, in the sense that he did not fight in the Custer fight. He was on the reservation then. And that has become the great symbol of the Sioux for standing up to the government. Crazy Horace, of course, did. He resisted all the way to his death, practically. Red Cloud stayed there through the whole, the whole thing. And, uh, and because of it, why he can be criticized for the fact that the Black Hills uh, were taken by the federal government and so on, whether he had any ability to uh, stop that or not. So he's uh, sort of a controversial character, but more and more it's become known that uh, he was skillful not only at war but also at diplomacy, and he did what he could and did it quite well in terms of the limitations, making the path easier for his people who were forced to... uh, become farmers rather than uh, live the life that they were used to as the nomadic, great, flamboyant hunters of the plains. Well, thank you very much, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Red Cloud and his legacy. Thank you. That was historian John McDermott talking about his new biography, Red Cloud, Ogallala Legend. To wrap up our show, we'll talk to UW's Symphony Orchestra conductor. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. There's a dramatic backstory to the next University of Wyoming Symphony Orchestra concert. If you think about it, what a composer is feeling, what a composer is thinking, can often have a profound influence on what the music sounds like. In 1937, that was very much the case for Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, as conductor Michael Griffith explained to Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. Shostakovich had been a successful composer in the Soviet Union. He was in the party's good graces. Stalin liked his music. And then he wrote an opera called Lady Macbeth of the District of Minsk, which initially was well-received, but then there was a scathingly terrible review of it. And for whatever reason, the party didn't like it, and Shostakovich was in deep trouble. He literally feared for his life that he'd be hauled off to a gulag for the rest of his life. And it was a serious crisis in his life. I understand he had a number of friends who were disappeared. And exactly. The and pressure not just, not just friends, but, but 
supporters, and you and I might use the term artistic supporters, but there is nothing that wasn't political in the Soviet Union at the time. Mm -hmm. So they were political supporters of Shostakovich as well. So clearly he had to do something. And after a few little pieces of music that he started and then discarded, um, he started in on the Fifth Symphony. If you listen to it, you can hear a great triumphant moments. I mean, there's a march in the middle of the first movement that you can hear the Soviet tanks coming across Red Square. It's that patriotic. And an article about the same time appeared in a journal in which Shostakovich supposedly said that this symphony is a Soviet artist's honest response to just criticism. Whether he really wrote it or whether wrote the article or whether mm -hmm. somebody else wrote that article and put words in his mouth, it's hard to know. And so we could say this is Shostakovich saying, this is what I really believe, this is what I believe about the Soviet Union, this is the great patriotic symphony that you need from me. And that's what the party took it to mean, and Shostakovich was back in everybody's good graces and remained so for most of his life. The question is, of course, did Shostakovich mean what the party attributed to it, or was he, in essence, writing something so incredibly over the top as to say, well, if you really understood, you'd know that this is making fun of what you believe or what you believe you want me to do and not me doing it. There is a set of memoirs told to Soviet musicologists in which he claims that it was all over the top, that it was meant to be sarcasm or irony. However, those memoirs came out four years after Shostakovich died, mm. and there are some musicologists that will say, well, those are the words of, of this Soviet music writer putting words into Shostakovich's mouth that Shostakovich would never have said that even if he believed it, and there's no actual evidence that he believed it. Problem is, we will never really know the answer to that question. So this is one of these pieces that, that raises the question, how much do we need to know about a piece to listen to a piece and understand it? I mean, the backstory, if you don't know it, isn't evident in a piece of music that doesn't have words. Right. I think in this case, the backstory really is useful. The backstory up to the point of, here's the dilemma Shostakovich was in. To understand that there is an artistic dilemma going on in Shostakovich's mind and know that this piece of music is his response helps you understand the music because he made choices at every inch of the way. Why did he make that choice is interesting. As you say, the music has no words so that instrumental music by definition has no actual meaning. But you can understand why certain meanings could be attributed to them and can understand why those meanings can have validity, even though it's impossible to prove. And interesting, though, it might be for us to actually know the answers to these questions. Maybe there's something to that ambiguity. I think it's much more interesting not to know the answer. If I knew the answer, I might interpret it differently. Uh, as a conductor. It, as a conductor. If I knew that it was meant to be over the top, I might 
make the music so over the top that it becomes satire of satire mm-hmm. and therefore ineffective. Conversely, if I knew that there's no chance it was over the top, I might be more conservative in my interpretation. So by having the ambiguity in my mind and having arrived at, at a conclusion, but knowing it's my conclusion without having evidence, that impacts my interpretation. And that's what makes it interesting. And, and I probably put more thought into this piece than almost anything that I've conducted. Not technical thought, but, but interpretive thought into this piece, more into this than almost anything I've ever done. And lest we think that going to the symphony is just an act of culture and taste, this reminds us that music is inherently political. One of my conducting teachers, soon after the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, was guest conducting in Prague. And the program, he chose the overture and he chose the symphony, but the concerto, he was told, and this is frequently the case, the concerto will be such and such, and it happened to be a concerto by Shostakovich. So he's in Prague just after the Russians invade, and there's a huge crowd for the overture and big, big ovation. And then there seems to be a long gap before the stage manager sends him back out for the, to conduct the concerto. And when he walks out, there's 10 people in the audience, and they're all in Soviet military uniforms. Clearly, the people of Prague would not sit and listen to a Russian composer, even a Russian composer that might be anti-Soviet. But what is interesting is after intermission, when he came out to conduct the, the symphony, everybody was back. So they just left for that one piece. They left be- for that one because piece because of what it symbolized. Exactly. Or because what they or they thought it what they thought it might symbolize. Right. Exactly. So there's a great deal more that's political within the artistic world than sometimes meets the eye. At UW Symphony Director Michael Griffith speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. The University of Wyoming Symphony Orchestra performs Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony on Wednesday, November 18th at the Buchanan Center for the Performing Arts. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to hear this program or individual segments again, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. We also love to hear your comments on our stories, and you can also send us ideas for more. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.